And if you're using the church Bibles, it's on page, well, the bottom of page 1089. Bottom of page 1089. John 18, on your way in, you also would have received a couple of handouts. And in one of the handouts, the middle of it, there's an outline of where we're going. Uh, so it would be helpful to have that open in front of you as well. And if you want a pencil from the welcome desk, you feel free to uh, go and grab one uh, so you can make notes to help you stay awake or whatever. Lah. Okay. John 18. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your Son that the Spirit of truth would lead the apostles into all truth, that he would bring to remembrance that which Jesus said and he would teach them uh, and show them many things. And we thank you that your Spirit has uh, uh, so taught John the Apostle as he wrote these words. We thank you that he has um, enabled John to tell us about Jesus. And we pray that same Spirit will be working in our hearts now as we uh, read this testimony, that we would see Jesus more clearly and that we would love him more than anything else in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if any of you here likes too much to be in control. Now, it's not that you want to be in charge of everything. It's not that you need everyone to be telling you how good or how competent or how wonderful you are. It's not that you mind other people taking leadership as long as you're in control of what's going on in your life. As long as there are no serious surprises along the way. As long as it's, well, you feel it's your hand on the steering wheel. Because someone's hand better be on it. And as far as you're concerned, there's no better person for that someone to be but you. Well, today we're looking at two main characters. Someone who really is in control and deserves to be. And someone who would like to be but isn't. It's now late at night. Jesus and his disciples had shared their last supper together. He had washed their feet to set them an example of service to one another. He had warned them that, that, that he would be betrayed and even identified his betrayer. He let them know that he was going away and told them to love one another. Peter had insisted that he will follow him. I will lay down my life for you, he said. And Jesus' reply had been cutting. Would you really lay down your life for me? I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus went on, had gone on to comfort his disciples, to tell them that he went to prepare a place for them. The way where he was going, well, he was the only way. He promised them the Holy Spirit. He urged them to remain in Him, warned them of persecution from the world, and then He prayed to His Father. Prayed that He would be glorified in the events that followed, that He might glorify the Father. Prayed for His disciples that they might be one. Prayed that the Father would protect, him even as, protect them even as He had protected them while He had been with them. Prayed that the Father would sanctify them by the truth of His Word. And he prayed that those whom the Father had given him would be with him in glory. 
And when he had finished praying these things, chapter 18, verse 1, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. You see, he taught his disciples, he prayed for them, now he's, he's going to die for them. The Kidron, on the next slide, was a stream. Uh, uh, it's an intermittent stream. It flows only in, uh, when during the, in the rainy season. Right? A bit like some of those streams that we saw in uh, the rain last week. Right? Some of the roads in KL became like one of those, like those streams. Well, here we have it in the back here. We've got the Kidron Valley here. The other, uh, the other Gospels call it the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't tell us the name of the garden. He just calls it a garden. And it's probably a walled garden with olive trees. Right? It's probably owned by someone or a family who are supportive of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus and his disciples often go there when they are in Jerusalem. we read that later. They had a base in Bethany about three k's away, the home of Mary and Martha. But this is probably their Jerusalem hangout. It's a private place where Jesus can teach them where they can stay and rest, even though it's outdoors, under the trees, and relax, you know. A place where they can go and pray, away from the hustle and bustle of the city around them. And that's what Jesus did that night. The other Gospels record his agonizing prayers, the fact that his disciples fell asleep while he was praying and all that. John skips all those details and moves on to tell us one more piece of information. Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew that place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You remember, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And Jesus knew that that's, Judas knew, Jesus knew that Judas knew that that is the place where they habitually went. And yet Jesus went there anyway. And so, verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers... And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there. The word band actually refers to quite a large number of Roman soldiers. Officially, a full band would have a thousand soldiers, but in practice it might have been less than 200. But still, a lot of soldiers to arrest one man. Sounds a bit strange until you remember that if Jesus wasn't in the garden, then they'd have to go and look for him where? Probably in the city, isn't it? And if they try to take him in custody in the city, that might have drawn a crowd and created all kinds of trouble. So they have to make sure they've got enough FRU men there right, for the arrest. Verse 3 also says that they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Weapons in case the disciples or the crowd put up a fight. Torches and lanterns in case Jesus ran away and they had to go and search for him in the darkness among the trees and, and the rocks in the valley or in the hills. But Jesus makes it easy for them. He doesn't go to the city where they have to fight. He goes to a quiet place. He goes to a place where Judas knows well. Where he makes no attempt to hide. He doesn't disappear into the hills or the valleys. In fact, he actually goes out to meet the arresting party. It's like he wants to get arrested or something, you know? Verse 4. Then Jesus, 
knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Most of the party wouldn't know him, didn't recognize him. It must have been a bit surprising to see someone you know, come out of the garden, or coming out of, those, out of the trees. And, but, but when Jesus asks this question, they, they give him the answer. Verse 5, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And the words that Jesus said literally are, I am. Now that could just mean, you know, I'm, I'm the one you're looking for. And maybe that's how the arresting party might have understood it. But, but Jesus had said this before on record in the Gospel of John to mean something far more profound. Because I am is the Old Testament name for God Himself, isn't it? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses says to God, Exodus 3:13, coming on the next slide, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, what's, what, what's your God's name? God says, what's your name? I am who I am. I am has sent you. And Jesus says to them, I am. And even if no one else got the significance of what he's saying, Judas, who has been with him when he says this kind of thing on a previous occasion, should have known. And John makes it a point to mention his guilty presence here, right at this part of the account. He stands even more condemned because of it. End of verse 5. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And you know what happens when Jesus proclaims who he is? When Jesus said to them, verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who is in control here? The band of soldiers? Officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees? The, The people with the weapons? Or the one who by just proclaiming his name is able to knock them over and flatten them? Psalm 27 reads this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet will I be confident. Jesus was indeed confident. His enemies had the numbers. His enemies had the weapons. But he would only be arrested if he chose to be. Well, the soldiers quickly regained their composure. And what do you think they did? They go, wow, he really is God. Do they? having experienced a tiny bit of his power against him, restrained in the utmost. Do they repent? No. Like Pharaoh in the time of Moses, they have hearts that are hard. When they've recovered, they get up, dust themselves off, and continue with their evil task. And many people today are like that as well, aren't they? We don't know how to take a warning. We experience something of God's power and judgment in a small, restrained way as a warning of the wrath to come. And when we recover, we dust ourselves off and prepare to sin again. 
These people were not deflected from the job they were given to do. And so when Jesus repeats his question in verse 7, Whom do you seek? They again say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I told you that I am. He's not running away. He knows his time has come. He's, he's going to go with them, even if they can't make him. But the one thing he is concerned about, the one thing he wants to ensure before he goes, is in the next part of verse 8. I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these men go. Let these men go. What a thoughtful and loyal way Jesus acted towards his disciples. He had called them to take up their cross and follow him. But he doesn't purposely put them in there. He protects them. He ensures that they are safe while he faces death alone. He allows himself to be arrested on his terms. And the terms that he gives to those who come to arrest him is that he should let his disciples go. And the amazing thing is that they did. Some people have commented that's just as much a miracle as throwing the soldiers on the ground. That's, it shows his love and his care for them. Now many of them in years to come will end up dying for him. Not to say that he doesn't take martyrs. But at this point they would not be able to. Their faith would not survive. They're not ready yet. Now is not their time. Jesus was going to the cross alone. He would die for them. Jesus shows, John shows that Jesus is fulfilling his own words to the Father that he prayed earlier in verse 9. He says, of this, this was to fulfill the word he had spoken. There was a prayer he made before. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. You see, friends, Jesus really did care for his disciples, didn't he? They weren't just his crew whom he used. They were his friends whom he loved. No greater love has a man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends, Jesus said. And that's what he did for his disciples. And if Jesus loved his followers so much, do you think that he loves us? his 21st century followers any less? Well, the answer is no. For he died for us as well. And we know that Jesus, who is in as much control today as he was on that night, will care for us. He will not let us get tempted more than we can bear. And whatever trials we face in this life, He is still in control. And He will make sure that we make it to glory in the end. And He will say, not one of those whom you gave me I have lost. So Jesus identified Himself, commanded His arresters to leave His disciples alone. And while all this is going on, out comes Simon Peter. 
impulsive, blundering, zealous, loyal Simon Peter. Simon Peter who said he would die for Jesus. And he meant it. He really had. And now he was going to prove it. He was going to risk his own life to save Jesus. And so like a hero, Simon is going to make a stand. And what a stand. Simon Peter, disciple extraordinaire, versus a couple of hundred Roman soldiers. Right? Maybe he thought he could just cause enough commotion for Jesus to escape. Whatever he's thinking, he went for, well, probably one of the few unarmed men in the company. Verse 10. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I don't know why he went for the ear. Maybe he was aiming for the head and missed. Right? And we don't know if the ear was cut off completely or just cut and left hanging. Or, you know, either way, it would be a mess. Right? But that is not the way of Jesus. He's in control of the situation. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't need Peter to come along and start fighting for him and chopping people's bits off. And so in verse 11, he says to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I, not, shall I not obey the will of the Father? Shall I not? We saw in Old Testament reading, the cup is the symbol of, of God's wrath, isn't it? Drinking the cup was the metaphor of experiencing God's punishment for sin. Jesus knew that the Father's will was that He should take the sins of the world on His shoulders. That He would bear the punishment for His people so that we wouldn't have to. That He would die for us as our representative and our substitute. That on the cross He would drink the cup of the full wrath of God against human sin. As a human. On behalf of humans. Jesus knew that that was God's will for Him. And He was ready to accept it. So He allowed Himself to be arrested. While his disciples, Mark tells us in his gospel, ran away at this point. And so the band of soldiers, verse 12, and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, it's only John who records this interrogation by Annas. Uh, the other Gospels record the actual trial before Caiaphas. But John tells us that Jesus was sent to Annas first and then spends his time describing this trial. See? Caiaphas was the official high priest that year, but Annas was, shall we say, the power behind the throne. But history tells us that he had been high priest for many years and he was deposed by the Romans in AD 15. Many Jews didn't like it. They didn't recognize it because the high priest, according to Mosaic law, was meant to be for life. So they considered Annas the real high priest. Never mind what those pagan Romans say. They can't decide those things. All right. Annas still held the power. And he made sure it was always his man that got the official job that was recognized by the Romans. Right? A bit like Putin in Russia. Lah, okay? When he can't be the president anymore, according to the Constitution, what does he do? He becomes the prime minister, gets his man to be the president until... Constitution, uh, constitution he, he's, he's been out for a term, then he comes back and becomes the president. All right? It's a bit like that. And so, who were the high priests? Well, the five of Anna's sons, one by one. And now Caiaphas, his son-in-law, gets the official job of high priest. 
But Annas unofficially is the real high priest. So much so that in Luke 3, 2, Luke says the word of God came to John the Baptist during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Right? As both of them are considered high priests in different ways. So it's not surprising then that they took Jesus to Annas first for the unofficial interview before sending him to Caiaphas for the official trial. But there's something a bit more significant about Caiaphas as well for our account. When John mentions Caiaphas, he reminds us in verse 14 that it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Uh, John is referring back to what he reported back in chapter 11. So if you keep your bookmark in chapter 18, come with me back to chapter 11. Chapter 11, and we're looking at verse uh, 48 onwards. You see, at this time Jesus has... uh, uh, Well, the Jewish leaders are meeting in their highest body, the the Sanhedrin or the council. Uh, They're very worried about their national interest because Jesus has been performing miracles. He's just raised someone from the dead. More and more people are believing in him. And verse 48, they say, what are we going to do? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. It's going to be a disaster. And then one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now what he meant was simple political expediency, isn't it? As distasteful as it sounds, it's actually better for us to kill this one man than for the whole nation to be wiped out by the Romans. Very utilitarian argument. Better one man die than lots of people die. So we get rid of him now. But John says that Caiaphas actually spoke better than he knew. He meant simple political expediency. But what he said had another meaning as well. He was actually speaking words of prophecy from God. John explains in verse 51 of chapter 11, he did not say this of his own account, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So when we read the name Caiaphas in the trial of Jesus, John wants us to remember two things. One, that Jesus is going to die for the people, not in the way Caiaphas meant, but the way that Caiaphas prophesied. He was going to die for the sins of the people from the Jewish nations and from around the world, to pay for their sins, to give them eternal life, and by his death to make one people of God from every nation. And also to remind us that Jesus has got no hope of a fair trial. Because why? Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin have already decided politically it's better for him to die. And who is he going to come before? Caiaphas. Everything from here on, as far as the Jewish side is concerned, is mere formality. So Jesus is first, he's taken to Annas. And Annas is waiting for him at the official residence of the high priest. don't know whether it's Caiaphas or Annas who actually stayed there, maybe both, because they're all part of one big family anyway. Two disciples, well, two of the disciples who had earlier fled, now turn around, and they're following the arrested party from a distance. Yeah, pick it up in verse 15. We're in chapter 18, huh? Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. 
Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Isn't that interesting? The first century world is just like our 21st century world, isn't it? It's not what you know, it's who you know. If you've got contacts in the right places, the right strings to pull, doors open for you and your friends. The girl on duty at the door let Peter in. Because the other disciple, who we think probably is John, we don't for sure, know for sure, because he knows the high priest and he asked her to do that. And, but something makes her think about him. Maybe it's his accent, maybe it's his looks, maybe it's because someone, John, who is known to be a disciple of Jesus, has asked for him to enter. And after a while, she comes to him and she asks him a question. She says, verse 17, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Well, at the time, what is he doing? He's standing with servants and officers around a charcoal fire because it's cold, they're warming themselves. Verse 18, and she's asked him this question. You're not one of his disciples, are you? And what does he say? No. I'm not. Denial number one. And at that point, the camera leaves Peter warming himself by the fire and moves to someone else who is being asked questions, not by the servant girl, but by the high priest. Annas is interrogating Jesus. And there are two areas he wants to cover in this interrogation. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about one, his disciples, and two, his teaching. And Jesus, as far as we know, says nothing about his disciples, protecting them as always. And he also says little about his teaching. Verse 20. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You see, the proper way to conduct a Jewish trial is to question the witnesses, not the defendant. Though perhaps Annas is considered the proper trial, just interrogation. But whatever the case is, Jesus is not prepared to play Annas' little game. But in turn, this gets one of the more minor officials angry. You know the kind. The overzealous junior officer, the little Napoleon that you have to deal with sometimes, who not only thinks he's really something, but makes it his duty to trample you down so he looks good to his boss, who probably despises him anyway. Right? Well, it's one of those kind of guys... He doesn't like the fact that Jesus has stood up to Annas. And verse 22, he says, When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Whack! Is that how you answer the high priest? Quite ironic, really, isn't it? Man slaps the incarnate God for talking back to the high priest. Is that how you answer the high priest? Is that how you treat the Son of God? But Jesus doesn't pull rank here. Instead, he appeals to the truth. Verse 23. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? 
if what I said is illegal or inappropriate or inaccurate, or if, if I threw my slipper at the high priest, then, you know, charge me with perjury or contempt of court. Bring out your witness and prove it. But if you can't do that, why do you assault me? Now, notice Jesus doesn't just offer him the other cheek. In the big picture of the night's proceedings, he does. He, he, with simply a word, he could have just nuked them all, right? But he chose to die. In the big scheme of things, he does turn the other cheek, but he doesn't do so here. He, his teaching about that was never meant to be interpreted woodenly or overly literalized. There may be times when defending the truth and justice, we as Christians must protest against violence and injustice, not just submit to it, right? But we must do so with a heart that is willing to suffer. Willing to do the will of the Father, whatever it costs. The way the interrogation was being done was illegal. Jesus knew it. He wasn't going to be cowed by it. And so without getting an admission of guilt or more information about the disciples, Annas referred him to his son-in-law. He was probably waiting for Jesus in another part of the same compound. Caiaphas would have had to see him anyway for the official trial because Caiaphas would be the one who has to ask Pilate for the execution. And so, verse 24, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. John doesn't tell us what happened at the trial before Caiaphas. And we find out about that from the other Gospels. Instead, John's camera moves back across the courtyard where Peter is still warming himself by the fire. And while Jesus has been faithful to his disciples, Peter is about to deny him again. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Denial number two. You know, I can understand Peter's denials, can you? Yeah, he was there incognito. He doesn't want to advertise the fact that he is a disciple. He's trying to be there quietly. His first question by the doorman, that, that took him by surprise. He doesn't have time to think of a, a decent answer. He just keeps his cover, puts his head down, and something, you know, hopes no one notice. And now, and now he's denied. It's hard to come clean, isn't it? He's, he's got to keep up the role. Now he says yes, and he just no, you said no, I was going. It's not like he's too scared to help Jesus. I mean, a couple of hours earlier, he was willing to risk his life to save him. But what's the point now? It's not going to help him. Jesus has already been arrested, man. Nothing he says is going to help Jesus. So if he's brave and identifies with him, he'll just, he'll just die as well. What's the point of that? And hasn't he done better than the other disciples? I mean, at least he's there. Where are the others? Two denials, and a third one becomes easier. Verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Now, here's one guy you don't want to admit who you are. Okay? Right, the servant goes, maybe you should. But this guy... He's a relative of the guy whose ear you cut off, right? He's someone who can be really hostile. 
Right? The doorman, she might have been curious. This guy's got an axe to grind. You've got to play it safe with this one. And so in verse 27, Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. He had denied his Lord three times, just as Jesus had predicted. Friends, denying Christ is a real danger. It's a danger because it's easy to do, not hard to do. In spite of all his good intentions, Peter ended up denying Christ. He didn't want to. It just, just happened, really. And then he did. When is it that we are in the greatest danger of denying the Lord? When is it that we just want to blend in with the crowd, hope they don't notice that we're Christian? And if they do, then, well, we just deny Him. Pretend He's not really our Savior. So we belong to another. Or pretend He's not really our Lord. Yeah, I go to church, but I'm not you know, that, that extreme about it. Yeah. Instead of admitting that Jesus is Lord of our whole life. Denying Christ is a real danger because if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to any one of us. But whatever the cost, don't deny the Lord. He is the one who bought us for the ultimate price of His own blood. He is the one who went to death step by step by step for us. He is the one who took our guilt, our shame, our punishment for our sake so we can be forgiven. He loves us. That's a good reason not to deny Him. I'll tell you another good reason not to deny Him. One day He'll come back as judge. And everyone will stand before Him. Including Annas and Caphias and the annoying guy who hid Him. Right? Everyone will stand before Him. Including all the people that we are so frightened of at the moment. Everyone will stand before Him. Including you and me. Ashamed of him now, he'll be ashamed of us then. Fear God, not man. And whatever you do, whatever happens to you as a result, do not deny Christ. But you know, whenever we sin on the outside, whether it's denying Christ or any other sin, it's because at that point, we love something more than we love Jesus on the inside, isn't it? Every time we sin, it's because at that point there is something more important to us than pleasing Jesus. Peter loves Jesus. But there must be something at that point that he loves even more. There must be some idol that he worships in his heart. Something or someone at that point of temptation is more attractive to him than loyalty to Christ. We may or may not be able to see the idols in our own hearts, but, but Jesus sees our hearts. And he knows all about them. And Jesus knew with Peter as well. Come with me to John 21. John 21. Because after Jesus' resurrection, he, he actually reinstates Peter. He is so gracious. 
And he calls on Peter to repent of his idolatry by asking Peter three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Once for every time, Peter denied him. And Peter says, Yes, I love you, Lord. And Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep. And at the end of the encounter, once again, like he had done way back at the beginning, he says to Peter, Follow me. But before he does that, he says something very telling. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What is Peter's problem? Jesus identified it for him. Peter wants to be in control, doesn't he? wants to be independent. He wants to be like the young man who can dress himself, do whatever he wants, go wherever he wants. Not like the old man who needs someone else to dress him and then take him where he doesn't want to go. Jesus said, follow me. Give up your idol of control. Let me be the one that you love more than anything else. Even more than being able to control. Be able to do what you want. And eventually Peter will be so changed that he would follow Jesus even to death and thus bring glory to God. And when you think about this and you look back in... uh, you look back at Peter's, life, the, the, Peter's actions in the past and well, you can see this there. His denial of Christ was not just because he was a coward. He's no coward. He took the initiative to attack the high priest's servant. But that was his initiative. He is trying to reestablish some control. It's not done in obedience to Jesus. Jesus has already said he's going to die. Jesus has already said he must go to the Father. Jesus already said his disciples will have anguish now, but joy later. He's already said it's time for him to be glorified. Peter loves Jesus, but he's got a different plan for Jesus than the Father's plan. And unlike Jesus, he does not love God so much that he's willing to submit to his will. Unlike Jesus, he doesn't fully trust that God is sovereign and will bring good even out of evil. Unlike Jesus, his heart is not fully with the Father. He thought he needed to be in control. And you can read that tendency back into other actions, can't you? He's the one who takes initiative to say to Jesus, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. And then he says, no, I wash my whole body. And Jesus says, he's trying to dictate what bits Jesus can wash. And Jesus says, no. And when Jesus says he's going to be betrayed, he's the one who makes signs to John to find out what Jesus is talking about. Because if you don't know, you can't control And he's going to be the one who's saying, I'm going fishing after Jesus left. Again, trying to regain some control in his life. And even in the other Gospels, Peter's the one who tries to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. Again, trying to reset the agenda so Jesus would be king in a different way than the Father intended. But Peter loved Jesus. He swore to follow him to death. And he wanted Jesus to be king. He was for him, not against him. But he had his own plans, his own goals, his own purposes that he had to control. What would happen if the servant girl knew he was a disciple of Jesus? What would happen if they found that one of the closest friends of Jesus was in the same compound as the arrested Jesus? What if Peter was arrested then? 
well, then any hope of keeping control over his own life, let alone others, would be lost. You can fight for control by attacking a slave with a sword, but you can't fight for control by admitting to a hostile crowd you're an accomplice of the one whom they put on trial. Peter may not have realized it, but he loved being in control of his life more than he loved Jesus. But Jesus knew all along. And you know what? Jesus loved him anyway. Jesus accepted him anyway. Jesus discipled him anyway. Jesus prayed for him anyway. And Jesus died for him anyway. And eventually, Jesus changed him. As we read the passage, do you notice how John keeps switching the camera between Peter and Jesus? Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter, and the next passage back to Jesus. He's showing us the contrast between the two characters, isn't he? For in contrast to Peter, Jesus really is in control. And he deserves to be because he is I am. God himself. And though he actually is in control of the situation, he willingly allows himself to be taken away as a victim of injustice in obedience to the Father to whom he has just prayed. You see, he loves the Father and submits to his will. He trusts the Father to glorify him even through suffering injustice and pain and death. That must be the ultimate loss of control. He fulfills the Father's plan and is not trying to override it with his own. He is motivated by love for his Father. As we look at our own hearts, what is it that we are tempted to love more than we love God? That is the thing that can lead us astray. That is the thing that's most a dangerous one. Maybe control, maybe comfort, maybe approval, maybe power, maybe all kinds of things. But that is your idol that can lead you to deny Christ and a host of other sins. What will you do if your idol is controlled like it is with Peter? Well, realize it is not wrong to try and control things. I'm not speaking in favor of chaos. It is wrong if your desire for control is greater than your desire to come under the control of Jesus. It is wrong if your need for control is more than your love for the God who is in control. It is wrong if your plans are more important to you than letting God work out His plan in the world and in your life. And if that is you, my friend, repent that you're trying to be in control in that way. Because you can't be in control anyway, actually. Peter found that out. 
And many people find out the hard way. You can create an illusion of control, but that will come crashing down with illness, job loss, death of a loved one, behavior of others, something else you can't control. And the idol will be shown to be a worthless idol anyway. And the worshiper is devastated. Repent of loving control more than you love Jesus. But rejoice that Jesus is in control. We've seen his control in our passage today. Even when he is being arrested. Rejoice that the one who is in control is not only in control of the trial, but in the control of all of life and history. And that one is the one who really loves us. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. He is the friend who has loved us to the utmost by laying down his life for his friends. He is the one who protected his friends and went to his trial alone. Jesus loves those whom the Father has given him. He loved us enough to die for us. And if he loves us that much, then it's okay not to be in control.